So the big question is this, how do value-obsessed leaders ascend their business and life to world-class levels of effectiveness, even if they're inside a bureaucracy or starting from scratch with absolutely no capital? That is the question, and this podcast is going to bring you the answer. My name is Doug Utberg, and this is the Terminal Value Podcast. Welcome to the Terminal Value Podcast. We have Bruno Patience with us today. And what we're going to be talking about is avoiding destructive innovation, which sounds a little counterintuitive because I know most of us are kind of conditioned to think, okay, well, innovation is good, right? Isn't that what drives things forward? And the answer, you know, in, in the larger context is yes, but for a number of companies who are already in existence, what they can end up doing is they could inadvertently end up creating a whole lot of chaos when they are trying to push that innovation in envelope forward. That's actually what we're going to be talking about today is how you make sure that you are harnessing constructive innovation while avoiding destructive innovation. So anyway, Bruno, please introduce yourself and let's get the conversation going. Well, Doug, first, uh, so happy to be here and uh, happy to talk about uh, this topic close to my heart. So uh, just for a very, very brief introduction, my name is uh, Bruno Peschetz and what I specialize in is helping business leaders innovate profitably. And that's exactly what you talked about, avoiding destructive innovation, focusing on actually value creating innovation. For my background, I have over a decade of experience innovating in different industries, defense, maritime, oil and gas, entertainment, education, failures and successes included. One of my favorite quotes, I guess from Benjamin Franklin is, if you show me somebody who's never failed, I'll show you a failure. And so so the whole, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of having failures because that means you've you've pushed, you've taken risks. If you don't ever take any risks, it's a guarantee that you'll never accomplish anything meaningful. Absolutely. And to tie on the failures, because I think that's a very important topic within the innovation space is failure is good. What's very important is to reflect on yeah. that failure. That, that is what, it's not about failure per se, but learning that comes from it. Yeah. Failure is important way to learn, but just you know, just focusing on one can also be detrimental. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, so now our topic is destructive innovation, how to avoid it. So what are some of the ways that you've seen destructive innovation come about? Just, you know, kind of how have you seen it manifest in your career? Yeah, so what I just want to briefly share first, because innovation is one of those words that you ask 10 people what it means to to them, you're going to get 20 definitions back. So I'm just going to share with you what I mean when I say innovation. I'm not claiming that's the definition, the pinnacle, but so just, you know what I'm talking about. So to me, innovation is something new that creates value. Something new, not to the history of mankind, but to the innovator and to their customer. Yeah. And value must be twofold. Value for the customer, but also value for the organization. Got it. That is what we asked about, avoiding destructive value. Now, some very common ways that I've seen in companies, small and big, especially the big ones, are, for example, deciding to invest in a thought instead Mm -hmm. of an idea. What I mean by that, you know, you have an executive walking in and saying, hey, what do you think about creating this cool product in that market? That's not Uh an idea. That's basically a shower thought equivalent. You cannot invest in that. What you have to do with that is actually flesh it out into an idea. An idea clearly states, states what is it about, who is it for, how are they going to be better off, and how is your company going to be better off? 
You don't need to answer that in a business case on 30 pages, yeah. but you need to be answered, able to answer that in a sentence or two. That's an idea. That is yeah. something you can put people to. That is something you can assign budget to. Because if you don't do that, you're assigning budget to non-existent thing that will <laughs> surely go for too long yeah. and will cost way, 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 way too much. An example of this, the first 18 years or so of my career, I was at Intel Corp. And one of the things, and this is a long time ago now, so most people have probably forgotten about it, but for a little while, at one point Intel decided that they wanted to get into the streaming media business. You know, and it was, you know, kind of cool, it was sexy, all this kind of stuff, right? They put a group together, hired a, you know, they put a whole bunch of people and burned a whole bunch of money. And what they ended up with was a streaming media service that they had to heavily subsidize that had equivalent pricing to Voodoo and about a 10th of the selection. And that's a nice way of saying that absolutely no competitive advantage, like literally none, <laughs> no competitive advantage at all. But it was kind of the big sexy group. So they got a bunch of internal people excited about it. Of course, what ended up happening is when it inevitably failed, all the people, they just kind of went and did something else at the company. And so that's actually one of the reasons why I think so many big companies have so much trouble with innovation is because there's not that win or go home tension. Because you know, if you're a new startup and you don't succeed, everybody's now unemployed. You know, Whereas if I go start up a new group at Intel, even if I know that they're pushing a rock up a hill and there's a 0% long-term chance of success, I'll say, okay, whatever. Intel has a lot of money. They'll be able to keep floating the cost of my headcount and I can just go do something else. Absolutely. I mean, skinning the game is very yes. important for success. So if you're building internal entrepreneurs, they need yeah. to have skin in the game somehow. But I, I want to touch upon something else that was in your story that yeah. is also very, very costly mistake. Okay. Let's say you have an idea, assigning whole budget to it. So you say our innovation budget is $200 million. Yeah. Bam, it all goes to that one big sexy idea with a team of superstars. Yeah. That's a horrible mistake because again, when you overinvest, you will actually not speed up the project. You will slow it down because even the most disciplined superstars are going to start putting in things that they think are interesting but aren't necessarily based on actual customer needs, yeah. requirements, and what will actually move the market. What's actually more important is, yes, you need to assign an innovation budget. Let's say it's a hundred something, but then actually release it to ideas in a very limited funding. Mm -hmm. So kind of, okay, we have a whole budget that's hundred million, whatever, but that idea is actually going to get only hundred thousand dollars. For that, what they're getting funding for is just to test if an idea yeah. makes sense, that's what they're getting the money for. If it yeah. makes sense, we can release more because that is, you know, executives are hesitant to invest in innovation because most of the projects will not create any returns on, on investments. Yeah. It's through this mechanism that they can actually protect their assets, be good stewards of the company, reduce the pressure from yeah. the shareholders because yeah. they're saying, okay, we are dealing with your investment very responsibly while at the same time, actually innovating. Yeah. Small but important mechanism. Yeah, 100%. And the thing I absolutely love that you just talked about is the idea of testing. And the notion that if you have an idea that you know, before you put a whole bunch of capital behind it, you would want to say, okay, what, what's my hypothesis? And how will I know whether or not that hypothesis is correct? And by the way, if you have a hypothesis and you can prove that it is incorrect for a small amount of money, I consider that to be a success because 
if you avoid burning a lot of money on something that doesn't have a chance of succeeding, that will help preserve the budget that you need for that idea that really can be the game changer. And I think the only way you can really do that effectively is to test. And so I think that is 100% the right paradigm. Absolutely agree with you. I mean, I'm so happy that testing is becoming more and more, let's say, entrenched in organizations, both big and small, so that we can now actually start getting even better at it. Large companies usually miss on additional value from testing is, okay, they have this innovation team, maybe they hire some service designers or whatever talent, and they actually do tests and, you know, they develop their ideas. That's good. But in order to supersize the value from that team, what needs to happen is their learning needs to be disseminated to the rest of the organization. Let me give you a tangible example. So the largest classification society in the world, they set up innovation teams. I was working with them. A lot of tests. Perfect. We're testing ideas. But what we also did is every month, the teams were sharing in like a big whole meeting. They were sharing, hey, this is what we learned about our customers. Uh, This was a surprising thing. This was a reinforced learning. This was something that's changed our mind. And completely different departments said like, oh, we're developing a product exactly for that customer. And we didn't know that. Bam. You know, it didn't cost anything because that team already created that insight and completely different team from completely different business unit was able to immediately reduce their development time by six months. Yeah. That is basically free value for the organization. So yeah. this dissemination needs to happen, but it doesn't happen by itself. You need to deliberately create such structures, meeting points. They don't need to be some crazy internal conferences, as simple as getting the right people in the room. Again, we're looking for easy ways to create value from innovation, not just big bang investments. Well, and I think the the idea of the stage gate investment is, is really important too, because of course, right, you know, you don't always know where that big value is going to come from, you know, because of course, you know, when you get something that is a proverbial hit, then, you know, you're not talking, say, like 10% or 10x, you're talking 100 to 1,000 to 1, 10,000 to 1. Okay, well, in that case, then you're much better off. And, you know, instead of saying $100 million on one idea, you might say, okay, well, I want to put $100,000 on 100 ideas and then hold the rest in reserve so that we can continue to fund the ones that start testing successfully to see if we can get, you know, just filter it down to where you get that small few that really look like they have a shot. Absolutely. And what I want to call out, what people sometimes get tripped on. So yes, stage get model can work for innovation. What makes it different, let's say from classical product development stage yet models or other funding models is that the doors are not watertight. Yeah. In innovation, because of the nature of uncertainty, in one test, you might learn that the business model doesn't work at all. That means that you should actually regress back to the previous stages of maturity because that team is back to starting point. They Uh need to figure out, okay, you know, maybe it's another value proposition. The customer is still the same, but we must test other things. And this is where it trips sometimes people because traditionally, if I pass through the stage gate, bam, it's locked. Why should I go back if prototype was approved? But in innovation, that is very important. So if the team came to your imaginary stage three and is now ready to, you know, hire 20 people, if they find out their operating model is not scalable, they should not go ahead and hire those 20. It should stay like a seven-person team and they need to repeat the tests again to find out something else or to say, as you 
correctly said, hey, this is actually a dead idea. And that has to be rewarded because of yeah. the opportunity costs that you did describe earlier. This is one of the other places where I think what I would call the general electric governance model um, you know, kind of can be detriment. And so, because of course, for people who aren't familiar, Jack Welch, General Electric, they were phenomenally successful in the 1980s and 1990s. And so the general, the GE performance management model basically said that, you know, for everybody at every level, essentially what they do is they get every year, they get ranked against their peers based on their tangible results delivered. So here's what's going to end up happening from that. That sounds kind of reasonable, but if you're trying to talk about cultivating innovation, you will not be rewarded for cutting off something that doesn't successfully test. You will be rewarded for getting it to the next stage of approval. So if you have the wrong incentive structure in place, you will be incentivizing people to push ideas for additional funding that they know won't be successful because they don't want to have to justify that they didn't have, quote, tangible results, which I think in a lot of cases is just people's subjective opinion anyway. There are relatively few people at any company who can justifiably claim tangible results that they drove on their own. Absolutely. And especially when it comes to innovation projects, yeah. if they're real innovation projects, we're looking at returns maybe on three, five or seven years or later. Yeah. Especially if you're talking about disruptive or radical yeah. innovation. And that kind of incentive structure will kill such investments. Correct. And when we think about such longer investments, they're basically insurance. If you're not buying insurance, maybe you will be okay. <laughs> maybe you won't be okay. Yeah. That's what insurance is for. You cannot know for certainty what's going to happen in the future. But tying into investments and executives, one Another common mistake, I don't want to say one because we're discussing them all the time. Yeah. Very common mistake, sunk cost fallacy. We've oh, already yes. invested, you know, $20 million, all our talented people. We already are working on this for three years. Let's do, you know, <laughs> 30 more million dollars and three more years. How much you invested so far should have absolutely no influence on the future direction of right. the project. That is, that, that, is that, that shouldn't, yeah, that shouldn't make any influence. What you should be looking at is evidence from the market, signals from the customers, signals from the employees. That's what the decision should be based off. Yeah. And yes, it can be painful, but trust me, it's better than spending double the amount to get nowhere. Yes. Well, and I think the analogy that I like to use to demonstrate sunk cost fallacy, because I think it feels a little abstract when people talk about it in terms of corporate governance. But if you think about it, I call it the used car analogy. And that's where, okay, so let's say I have my vehicle that I've had for about 15 years or so. Still running halfway decent, but it's like, okay, it needs a new transmission. I go, all right, well, okay, I'll put, I'll put $2,000 into it. And then they go, okay, well, it needs, needs some new brakes. Okay, well, I already put $2,000 in, so I'll put another 400 for brakes. And then I'll say, okay, well, needs new tires. Well, you know, I already just put in 2,400. So what's another 500 for tires? Uh, but, you know, at, at some point you have a valueless asset that you need to just dispose of, but it's hard to let go of it when you've been continuing to plow money into it. But what you're saying, which is absolutely true, is that whenever you are making a forward-looking decision, what's happened in the past is irrelevant. You have to basically just be able to cut it off and only address your forward-looking prospects. So what that means is sometimes you will continue to fund projects even if you, you know, say, say you, you may greenlight something 
that you've burnt a ton of money on already. And you say, hey, if we, because this is what finance people tend to do, because I come from finance, so I've seen this all the time, is you'll have a project that has burned a whole bunch of money up until a certain point. Then you're saying, okay, well, should we keep funding it? And, and what, the, what we'll do is we'll say, okay, well, look at all the investment. This is a bad investment. It's, you know, it's already lost so much money. It's like, okay, well, but you can't get that money back that it's already lost. The only thing that matters is what does it look like going forward? And if you have adequate net profitability based on your hurdle rates going forward, then it does make sense to invest, assuming that you know you have a access to the capital and that it's shaped out based on the relative priority. But if you include all this, all of that sunk cost, then you can end up killing something that makes sense to keep working on. Alternatively, you can have something that does not have very good future prospects, but people will say, no, we need to keep funding it so that it doesn't become a failure. And killing something that you should continue with or continuing with something that you should kill, those are equally bad decisions. And this is why it's uh, so important for executives to actually, in my experience, working with executives, they're finely tuned decision-making machines. But what's dangerous is if they're alone. They need to be speaking with their peers, trusted advisors, whomever, and hold the mirror to each other. Yeah. Because that is the only way to kind of, you know, pinpoint, oh, maybe I'm now being too biased. And it's yeah. sometimes it's difficult to see the system when you're within the system. And that's only Got natural. It. But luckily, there are simple ways as easy as pairing up with a trusted peer and kind of just yeah. playing with each other, you know. Like, what do you see here? Here is what I see here. Oh, do we have the same understanding of the situation? As simple and as complicated as that. We really don't need to go over than that. Some are gotcha. going to the extreme, you know, they're saying, you know, cognitive biases, that they're bad, we need to eliminate them. But that's unrealistic. You know, we are humans, we are not <laughs> machines, yeah. we cannot ignore yeah. our biases. What we should try is to become aware of them. Because and if I'm mit- aware yeah, of yes, it- eliminating bias and mitigating bias are very different things. Eliminating bias is it's impossible. Mitigating bias can be done. Usually that's by having a decision committee of people who have different ways of thinking and different perspectives. Exactly. Because, Cognitive diversity. Yes, yes. Cognitive diversity, as in they don't have to look different. They have to think different. Because this is another one that I saw in my corporate careers a lot is you get a lot of decision boards of people who all look different, but thought identical. <laughs> And so people who look different, but think the same will not help you make better decisions. You need people that think different. A lot of times they'll look different too, but the important thing for making better decisions is people who think differently because they will help mitigate one another's cognitive biases. And I think this gets especially important as you escalate in responsibility, because at least one of the things I've observed is that all people in all places are all subject to cognitive biases. But as people gain in experience, authority, intelligence, responsibility, their perception of themselves gets to where the people start thinking that they're objective and not subject to those biases. And Mm -hmm. so if you have somebody who is biased, but doesn't know it, that can actually be a potentially dangerous situation. And it's very interesting because I think it was David Casey. So so he wrote about curse of the executive. You get there because you're very successful. And, you know, talented people can make even the most incompetent executive shine. But after after some time, because you know success is attributed to to the boss, to the executive, they start believing that they have all these talents. While in yeah. fact, it is their talented people that execute 
all the brilliant <laughs> or yeah. brilliant plans. And that is, again, why it's important that they do have a peer circle where they can reflect with each other and discuss. Uh, you did mention performance. And that is another point yeah. where usually in, in co larger corporates, small ones, not so much because they're usually focused on one thing. So measuring yeah. is much easier than in a big corporate. But in a big corporate, when it comes to investments in innovation, there needs to be measurements at different levels. So kind of when we're talking about at a strategic level, we're really talking about measuring innovation portfolio. What you said, $100,000 for 100 ideas, but then actually measuring the whole portfolio, like what's the return on portfolio? You know, what's the average time to return? Yeah. What's the average time to debt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then going level down, which is actually the intermediary, the managing innovation you know mm -hmm. what, what's the average time in in your stages what's the average cost within the stage what is kind of the average time to retire what is the average time to learn and then the final is actually every team every innovation team and this is again where people trip over because really when we come to every specific team each one of them should define their own metrics yeah. And this is what's painful in the innovation space because people are continuously looking for that one metric, you know, is it revenue? Is it this? Is it that? It depends because yeah. as we discussed, you know, if it takes you three to five to seven years to develop an idea in the market, you cannot start measuring revenue on year zero. What you should measure is some signal from the market. For telco, that will be completely different than from a company de developing freight trains to companies selling yeah. gluten-free products. So how could yeah. they all have the same measure? They can't. You need to find yeah. them. Got it. No, that's absolutely correct. Bruno, this has been a great conversation. Give us just one, one or two last ideas and let everybody know where they can find you online, your website or your, or your social handles. Dark time flies when we talk about topics we care about. What we discussed now, I actually have written a resource that's freely available to everybody. I just called it nine big don'ts of corporate innovation. It's basically, you know, nine very expensive mistakes and what you can uh -huh. do about them. Everybody can freely download them on my webpage, www.pesec.no. I'm. I'll send it to you. You know, uh, your listeners. If they have a question, they just reach out yeah. to Doug. Doug knows me. <laughs> he can get it to you. One thing that I would like to say to everybody doesn't matter: big company, small company, startup, individual, etc. You can innovate. Yeah. There is no elitism in innovation. Creativity is inherent human trait. You might think that you're not creative. You might think that you're not innovating. Bollocks, you are. What might be different is how, how much. Of course, that yeah. is different from one to other person. But don't let anyone tell you that you're not allowed to innovate, that you cannot innovate. You can. So much resources, so much material is out there. You can grab it and you will make something. <laughs> Just take the right. first step. All right. Excellent. Bruno, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for listening to the Terminal Value Podcast. Please feel free to visit me online at www.terminalvalue.biz where you can subscribe, find me on social, and then we can connect and just keep the conversation going. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you and I hope you have a wonderful day. All rights reserved. No part of this broadcast may be produced in any form by any means without written permission from Business of Life, LLC. All trademarks and brands referred to herein are the property of their respective owners. 
Thank you for listening to the Terminal Value Podcast. Please feel free to visit me online at www.terminalvalue.biz where you can subscribe, find me on social, and then we can connect and just keep the conversation going. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you and I hope you have a wonderful day. All rights reserved. No part of this broadcast may be produced in any form by any means without written permission from Business of Life, LLC. All trademarks and brands referred to herein are the property of their respective owners.